Father, we thank you for Tim. We thank you for the work that you've done in his life and through him. We thank you for the word that you've given him for us today. We pray that you would bless him by filling him with your spirit. Drench right through him and let him flow out into this room. Allow him to be a minister of your Holy Spirit to us and of your word and your truth. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Well, it's good to be here. And you know what? Almost all guest speakers start that way. Say, oh, it's a treat to be here. It's really good to be here. And a lot of the times they lie. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're not sure where they would rather be. But I want to tell you why it's a treat for me to be here. It's because um, many, if not most, of the contexts in which I speak are slanted towards people who either aren't sure even that God exists or they have a very shallow understanding of Him. We, in, in large part, have oriented our church to build a bridge to those who are spiritually disoriented and who are unreached, which means that I consistently, when I have to speak, uh, are monitoring, you know, am I saying something that's going to be interpreted this way or that way or the other way from people who are on the outside? And so every once in a while to be in a context like this where I can make some pretty safe assumptions, I can assume a love for God. I assume, as the president has said, that part of your sort of vision statement, that you are lovers of God. I assume a love for His Word. I assume an already existing passion to get to know Him more intimately. You know, every once in a while where you have to so carefully measure every word that you say, it's just nice to be in an environment like this and to worship with you and, and to be able to teach this morning. Now, I do have a little bit of... Um, fear in being here. And you might say, you know, a guy that's been a pastor for almost 40 years, like, what's he scared of? Um, well, my fear has to do with the color of my hair. And I've honestly, in preparation, been asking myself, uh, do I really understand the issues that your generation faces as you seek to accurately represent God to your peers? I mean, there is a pretty obvious gap in our ages. And that gap was driven very forcefully home to me just uh, last month. I was in Toronto filming a preaching workshop that I think some of you participated in here on campus. And because it was a broadcast event uh, from Crossroads Communication, which is the guys that publish, you know, Huntley Street and produce Huntley Street and stuff, before we got to go on, we got sent first to the makeup room. And so I'm sitting there and this uh, makeup artist working on me and all of a sudden I have this flash of inspiration and so I said to her, I said, hey, do you think you could make me look younger? And she paused for a long moment because she wanted to be politically correct. She didn't know what she should say and finally she said, Mr. Schroeder, she said, we don't have that much time. <laughs> I thought, ooh, okay, okay, I, I get it. So I am very much aware of a little bit of a generational gap and am trusting God to fill in that gap uh, with us here this morning. I, I want to talk with you this morning uh, in your ongoing series of the names of God, but I want to talk very specifically about God's identity crisis. And by that, I don't mean that God is unclear about who He is. I think we can very safely conclude that God has Himself pretty much figured out but I am talking about the confusion that surrounds us whenever the conversation turns Godward. Even when we use such terms as El Shaddai, God Almighty. Today, when you're talking to anyone, you go out and you do your street ministry, it doesn't matter who you're talking to, and someone says, I believe in God, or I don't believe in God, or even if they recite a creed to you, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The reality is that until we engage them, 
we don't really have a clue who they're accepting, rejecting, or professing. Because there's this identity crisis. To those who grew up in a guilt-inducing religious system, God is an angry judge who just takes every opportunity to get them. And so when we add the adjective El Shaddai, God Almighty, to it, all that means is that He gets them more powerfully. He can, you know, really condemn and criticize them. To others, particularly in your generation, the common notion of God is one that's quite vague and flexible. Uh, academics call it the social construct. In other words, there's no outside absolute reality uh, such as a Bible to fix the notion of God. Uh, rather, just individuals and groups, they decide for themselves. So God can be whoever or whatever they want Him to be. And so for someone you're talking and say, oh, I believe in God, well, they just might mean that he is psychic energy or inner consciousness. For others, you know, well, he's just someone who is stronger than me. Or uh, the one that really gets me, to quote Erwin Lucer, when some people say they believe in God, what they really believe is that they're looking in the mirror. I believe in God, it's me. And there are an awful lot of people today that think, you know, it all starts and ends with me. Now, to be fair, there has never been a time when there's been no confusion about God. But these days are something else, and multiple views abound, and some of them ought to make us cringe, some of them ought to make us cry, and all of them ought to make us really think. Let me just show you how complex the discussion is. Today is November 8th, 2016. It's election day, south of the border. A nation that says, in God we trust. Who is that God? A nation that is embroiled in one of the nastiest elections in history with both sides claiming that God is on their side. Well, who do they trust? Is he Republican? Is he Democrat? Is he both? Is he neither? It's not a simple uh, issue. December 10th, 2007. So just think back. How old were you December 10th, 2007? Nine years ago. That was one day after Matthew Murray armed with three guns and a thousand rounds of ammunition, entered the New Life Church in Colorado Springs and started shooting. So you might have a vague recollection of that. It was a tragedy in which several were wounded, two teenage sisters were killed. What added a twist to that story was CNN's headline, which declared, security guard who stopped the shooter credits God. Jean Assam, a volunteer security guard at the church, a former police officer, saw what was happening, took out her own gun, and shot the gunman, later saying, I was weak, and where I was weak, God made me strong, filled me, and He guided me, and I'm honored that God chose me. Now, just reflect on that for a minute. Now, I don't know anyone who isn't thankful that the gunman was stopped, and you don't know this about me yet, but if you know anything at all about me, you know that my full engagement with law enforcement is there. I've got the highest respect. I worked with them. I carried a gun for quite a few years. But think about the view of God that says, God helped me shoot straight to take the bad guy out. And again, I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just saying it starts getting complicated. And if you want an interesting coffee break, just try that for the discussion starter on your next cup of coffee. Does God help you shoot straight at bad guys? You're like, how do we understand this almighty God? Some distortions of God are pretty easy to dismiss. In, in his book, God Does Not, Brent Latham describes that although they're very common, some of these notions of God we can just sort of dismiss. You know, for instance, contrary to certain end zone rituals, I think we'd all agree that God does not distribute touchdowns to his favorite players. 
I mean, we get that, as Canadians especially, because we know that God's a hockey fan. He doesn't care much about touchdowns in football. Um, and I hope that we've pretty much figured out this old notion. You hear all the stories that God probably doesn't award the best parking spots to the person who had the longest devotions that morning. You know, some distortions are pretty easy to dismiss, but others aren't such as the idea of God as the divine matchmaker who has one perfect spouse in mind for each of us, or whether God is the key member of the medical team. It all sounds really good at, on, on this hand, and then you start playing that out, and one Christian spouse dies, and the remaining Christian spouse remarries, or one 10-year-old receives an organ transplant, and we claim this miraculous healing, forgetting all about the 9-year-old who died to make the organ available. See, all I'm saying is that any discussion of Almighty God is extremely complicated. And although we hate to admit it, much of what we think we understand about God may not be accurate at all, but might come from our love for the all lived happily ever after or from our Western mindset. So all this to say that you're taking on a huge topic this fall in your chapel series in the names of God, and it's a topic that is fraught with complexity. But if it leads to to getting to know Him better, if it leads to you coming to love Him more, if it leads to a deeper respect for His divine mystery and majesty, there's no downside to that. And so my goal, my purpose is in the time remaining that we might take just a baby step in that direction today. And so with all that as background, um, I have an awesome privilege today. And I'm going to take you to a text that does not even include the name El Shaddai, but rather it talks about how we ought to respond to El Shaddai. I'd like if you've got your Bible with you to turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Some people in every age have held a very small view of God. That he lives only in a certain territory. If you've taken your Old Testament courses, you, you know that, that God was viewed as being very territorial, occupying only certain buildings, even in our day today. He was contained in certain religious frameworks. And then comes this psalm, most likely written by King David, and he wrestles with this view of Almighty God, of El Shaddai, and it just sort of takes the lid right off the box. And what I'm suggesting and where I'm going and how I'm structuring this morning is that David's expressions toward this Almighty God contain at least five symptoms that exist in any healthy view of God. And so as we talk about each of these symptoms, those of you in the nursing program, you know, symptoms are there for a reason. What does it say about you? What do these symptoms indicate? And so this is not an academic moment. I want you to analyze each of these symptoms and say, Man, where, what does it say about my view of God and how healthy is my response to Him? So, all right, five symptoms of a healthy view of God. Here's the first one. A healthy view of God begins with an overwhelming sense of awe. Overwhelming awe. When David wrote this psalm, although I doubt that it was in his mind, he did something incredibly helpful because he openly admitted that when it comes to describing God, he couldn't. And he tried. If you follow along in the psalm, he did his best. He says, man, you searched me, O Lord. You, you know me. In fact, you know everything there is to know about me. You know when I sit, when I rise. You know, you know everywhere I go, and you're not even on Twitter. Um, you, you even know what's in my mind before the words reach my tongue. 
You're behind me, ahead of me, you lay your hand on me. God, you are, and then he runs out of words. Look at verse 6. What do I know about you? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it's too lofty for me to attain. In other words, what David is saying, I can't grasp you, God. I'm at my intellectual, emotional, expressive capacity, and I haven't even scratched the surface. Oh, God, you are, and he's just at a loss of words. Got nothing else to say. Can I give you a little pastoral advice from an old guy? Never worry too much about the person who can't fully describe God. Worry about the one who can. Worry about the one who thinks they've got him all figured out. Because sooner or later, if it is almighty God we're talking about, like David, we're going to reach the absolute end of our capacity. Just this sense of awe. Earlier this spring, I bought this fancy-dancy exercise watch. And it's, it's very valuable for running and cycling. And, and a few weeks after I bought it, my wife Arlene and I were cycling. And I know you don't know exactly uh, where we live, but, but the area where we live was a, a sort of a quick uh, 30K out and back that is all uphill going out and then consequently downhill way back. Now, let me just show you how, how this works a little bit. If we've got this first uh, graph that comes up. So the green is elevation. And so you can see the first half of the ride is pretty much all uphill. And the blue is speed, and so because we're going uphill, it's pretty low. And the red is my heart rate, which is being tracked by this. And because we're going uphill, you can see that it's reasonably high. And then you see halfway through, we get up to the top. So the, uh, we're not quite there yet, but so we get up to the top. We start coming down, and the speed goes up a little bit. My heart rate goes down a little bit. And then let's show that next slide. Do you see that one little spike that's going on there? Any guesses as to what that's all about? We're coming down this hill. Watch tells me we're going right about 40 kilometers an hour. We're together on our mountain bikes, or, or on our road bikes, and we come over this little rise in the, in the road. Right smack in the middle of the road is a great big black bear. And I slam on the brakes. Arlene slams on the brakes right behind me. And my heart rate in that moment went from 80 to 146. Just like that. And apparently the bear's heart did the same thing because it turned and ran away, and my heart then sort of returned back to normal. But where in the world am I going with this? All through Scripture, when people encountered God Almighty, it did that kind of thing to them. Just a sense of awe. And it makes me wonder, how long since my watch has shown a spike like that in the middle of worship? When I go and plug this back into the computer when I get home tonight as we were sitting here and, and worshiping, did my heart rate go up as I encountered the Almighty God, my good, good Father? A healthy view of God has this, this awe, this sense of who he really is, and it just comes. And, and David doesn't pretend to understand or capture him. He just says, there's so much I don't know. I'm, I'm just overcome. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's, it's too lofty for me to attain. That's symptom number one, overwhelming awe. Second symptom, I think a healthy view of God often, oftentimes contains a sense of respectful unworthiness. One author put it this way, he said, if one's first reaction to God is wonderment, the second may very well be the urge to run. 
I understand that. And all through Scripture, we, we see glimpses of people encountering the Almighty, and they're so overwhelmed by what they see that, that they run. Some bow down. Others, one of my favorite, in Isaiah chapter 6, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Next phrase, woe is me. Oh, man, I, I'm unclean. I'm, I'm worthy, unworthy to be here. David's response fits right in. Verse 7, you know, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, this is an awesome picture going on. David, as you, as you know, is a bit of an artist, and so he's using artistic language here. He says, if I, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, he's clearly talking about a glorious sunrise. Been up early enough to see one of those lately? Almost makes 8 o'clock classes worth it. Or if I settle on the far side of the sea. Now, this requires just a little bit of geography. In your, if you're in Israel, which direction is the sea? A hint, it's the same. Well, which one? But you're close. It's sort of from Alberta. If you start thinking of the ocean, it's the same thing. It, you know, it's going to be to the west. And so what David is going on here, he says, from glorious sunrise in the east until it sets on the far side of the horizon on the west, God, you are. And you're everywhere in between. And then he continues, he said, oh, that's not enough. It's not enough to see God from sunrise to sunset. He continues, if I try to hide in the dark, so now he's going into the nighttime. He says, even in the darkness, it won't be dark to you, but the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Here's the good news and the bad news. The good news is there's no place God isn't. The bad news is there's no place God isn't. He says, I'm so unworthy to have a holy God with me all the time. When I was your age, I was doing a sociology degree at the University of Alberta, and I would go back then afterwards uh, when I came back and I pastored a, a small church in South Edmonton, and I just got so used to studying at the university that I would go back up and I'd do my sermon work up on the university campus, and I would drink coffee. So all through my undergrad and then all through the time I was pastoring in Edmonton, I would go to the same coffee shop in the Hub Mall on the University of Alberta campus, and there was a little place called the Pink Pantry. And the same gal, Joyce, served me all these years. And after about five, six years, one day somebody had told her something, and she just shrieks out to me, and she says, you're a priest? She says, you didn't tell me? After all you've heard me say in this time. And I said, well, I, so what? God's here all the time anyway. And she just thought she would never have said those things if she knew I was a priest. See, we like to put God in containers. We like to have a small God sometimes who we can find at church when we want Him and we can leave at church when we don't want Him. That's not El Shaddai. That's not David's God. He paints a picture of a God so magnificent and so massive and so majestic that it's typically accompanied by this sense of respectful unworthiness because God is with me all the time. Now, just pause here for one moment before we go on to the next symptom because I think there's some room for misunderstanding here. I want to encourage you to consciously bow before God and become aware of Him. One goal on one side is such intimacy with our good, good Father that you are welcome in His presence. That's grace. But, and this is the tension in the process, if you really do become aware of who El Shaddai is, it will also include a very healthy, respectful unworthiness to even be there. And isn't that just the bigness of God? Welcoming and overwhelming all at once. Gracious and holy and pure at the same time. 
That's our El Shaddai. Symptom number three, a healthy view of God includes the encouragement of secure intimacy. If, if your awareness of God is a bit overwhelming sometimes, just keep going because the next symptom is extremely positive, this security and this intimacy. You can read any book, anywhere, anytime. You will never match David's next description of God and God's intimate knowledge of his life. Verse 13, we quote it all the time. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That opening phrase, you created my inmost being. Literally translated, you made my kidneys. That's actually, that's actually what, it's, what it's getting at from, from the Hebrew, my kidneys. Not just the parts that are seen, not just the organs that we normally think of as crucial, but the deep, inner, purifying, detoxifying organs essential to life. God, you got right down deep with me, and you did it before I was even born. Now, if this is true, and don't forget, this is Holy Scripture we're reading. If this is true, there is one phrase you can never say to El Shaddai. You can never, ever say to him, you don't understand. From the earliest cells of our makeup to the innermost parts of our being, God has had his hand on us. And it causes David to conclude, verse 17, O oh God, how precious to me are your thoughts. Nothing about me escapes you. Where do you find greater security than that? A God who knows you that intimately says, you're mine, you're my creation, I love you. One night, uh, back in my policing days, and I don't want to give you a whole biography here, but I was an RCMP auxiliary member for a little more than a decade, back in the era when we were armed and, and on the street. And I was working with a, a very small female partner one night, and we engaged a couple of wannabe Hells Angels in a dark back alley parking lot uh, downtown Kelowna. And I don't assume that you know a whole lot about biker gangs, but biker gangs almost always have prospects hanging around. They're trying to impress. They're wanting to get in. And so they have the prospects do all their dirty work for them. And their job this time, it was a little cube uh, truck that was there. They were guarding the booze truck on a party weekend. And what had happened is that these guys weren't taking their responsibility very seriously, so they were sitting back there and they were openly consuming alcohol in public, which gave us reason to search and to see the rest of their booze, which would have guaranteed them quite a beating from the Hell's Angels uh, for, you know, not carrying out their job. And so we're moving in on this, and we're about to search and seize all of the booze from their truck, but rather than give in, they decided that they wanted to fight. There's two of them, biceps bigger than my legs, and there we are, me and my five-foot-six, 105-pound partner. And the old gospel tune was running through my mind. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the Lord. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, oh, this is not going to go well. But I had one ace up my sleeve. And just before the fighting started, I said to the guy that was obviously the leader of the two, I said, buddy, there's one thing you ought to know. I said, before we got out of that car, I cued the mic and called for backup. Yeah, you're bigger and stronger than us. You can probably win, but you need to know something. In about 90 seconds, there's going to be six police cars here, and you're not going to win that one. And that confidence of having cued the mic, having called already for backup, made a total difference in the way we faced those odds. I knew what we were up against, but I also knew who was on my side. I knew who was coming. Do you? See, we're pretty good at focusing on what we're up against. Do you see who's coming. 
El Shaddai, God Almighty, is your Father, your Creator, the one who's vitally and intimately involved in your life. There is no greater security. And this symptom isn't a flippant, defiant view of life. It it just describes a, a security when you are doing your life knowing that the hand of the Lord God Almighty is on you. He's known you from before you were born and His ability to carry you. I said at the outset, this is not academic. I don't know, I know two or three people in this room today, so I don't know the vast majority of you, but I got a pretty good guess that in this room are people who are facing some pretty overwhelming circumstances today. There's stuff going on in your families back at home. There are wounds in some of your relationships here. There are pressures that are indescribable. And some of you need to walk back out those doors in 10 minutes just clutching the truth that you're not going out those doors alone. The Lord God Almighty is your God. He's your Father. There is a secure intimacy with Him. Symptom number four. It's a strange one. If you've got a healthy view of God, you will know the frustration of righteous defensiveness. Now, that phrase doesn't mean anything to anybody, so let me explain it. The frustration of righteous defensiveness. Now, the secret I'll let you in on is that I was actually going to skip this part of the psalm because, quite frankly, I couldn't make any sense out of it. I mean, here you're going, Psalm 139. It's this beautiful description of God and all these verses that we love to quote and, you know, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, you've had your hand. And all of a sudden, right in the middle come verses 19 to 22 in which David starts lashing out at bad people. Verse 19, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. And then there's two more verses in which all he does is just says how much he hates them. It sort of ruins this whole beautiful psalm. And for a long time, I read and I reread and I studied this and I thought to myself, what in the world is up with this? And, and a number of scholars did the same. They said, oh, this is clearly a later insert from somebody else because this doesn't fit with what David is saying. Or does it? Just do me a favor. I want you to think for a moment of the person you love most in this world. Just get that person in your mind, somebody you really, really love. So if after chapel... You and I went for coffee, and I started bad-mouthing that person. What would happen? And I don't mean just a few slightly off-base comments. If I tore your loved one to shreds, I called them filthy names. I made wicked insinuations about them. You know what would happen? Most of you loving Christian pacifist Bible school students would take a swing at me. Exactly. Because I'd be ripping someone you love. Is the penny starting to drop here? David's been describing his wonderful God who he loves with all his heart. But then he looks around and he sees everywhere there's people who are tearing his God apart. These people who who hate his God, they speak of you with evil intent. Get this, they even misuse your name. Imagine that, they even misuse the name of God. (laughs) He says, I can't, I just can't handle it. God, will you please not deal with them, destroy them. And I'm not totally sure how that ought to work itself out in our lives, but I just want to say, does your love for God ignite that in you? The sense of righteous defensiveness when you see your God treated the way so many people treat Him today? I spent the last 
eight or so years involved in some reasonably intensive karate training. And when I first started uh, training, my wife Arlene joined me for a while. She, she stayed with it for the exercise value until we actually had to start fighting, and then she decided that wasn't for her. Well, one day I was out of town on a speaking trip, and Arlene went to karate by herself. And later that night, when we talked by phone, she sounded a little funny on the phone, and she says, guess what? She said, I got a fat lip. She said, I got smoked at karate today. I said, really? She says, yep. She says, I was supposed to shift back, but instead, by mistake, I shifted in, and she says, I just got nailed right in a kisser. Next class, I was back. Before we even got on the dojo floor, down in the dressing room, the guy who had hit her comes up to me, oh, Tim, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I didn't mean to hit her. And I thought to myself, like, why is he apologizing to me? Didn't hit me. Or did he? Or did he? Do you love God Almighty so much that every pain inflicted on him breaks your heart? That, that's another level. And to be clear, there's a big difference here between us getting self-righteous and telling others they've got to clean up their language and all that, you know, which is more about us. Or is it genuinely feeling the hurt when somebody curses and tears down the God you love? Righteous defensiveness is a great symptom. You see people just blatantly ripping God apart, and it doesn't do anything in here? That's a bad sign. It ought to be touching your heart. All right, one last, one last symptom. It's the peace of unreserved surrender. When everything else is said and done, there's this one final response, and it's another beautiful verse. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You're God. I'm human. You're holy. I'm sinful. You're all-powerful. I'm frail. And so, God, I just lay myself before you and I place myself fully in your hands. And there's no better place to be. I don't expect any of you to know this. I had to dig in and start finding this out just to be here today. In fact, the name El Shaddai, it starts in the Old Testament amongst the patriarchs. El Shaddai was the God who made himself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and this all-powerful God. But the name El Shaddai occurs 41 times in the Old Testament. Any guesses as to where it occurs most often? 29 of those times, so almost three-quarters of the times that this name for God is used are found in the book of Job. It's found in the midst of suffering. If ever there is a need to turn to the all-powerful God, it's in times of deep trouble where you just lay yourself at His feet and say, God, I am yours. Take me, do what you will, because I trust you. Well, we're out of time. Normally when I speak, I'm not afraid of a bell ringing to say we're at the end, but being on a campus, I, I asked Mark, is there a bell that goes off? And, you know, after which, like, I'm done? And uh, he said, well, not really. But I started out by saying this is a, a treat for me to speak in this environment. And I want to tell you that I really mean that. To have the privilege to talk about the God I love in a community that is less than half my age, that loves him just as much or more. And just to have this in common, to come together and say, this is who he is, and we all love him with one heart, one soul, one voice.
And I pray that maybe something, some words in the songs that we sang, some words out of this great song, something in this hour might have just nudged you one baby step forward in your love for El Shaddai. Amen.